So this is our third episode of the Ukrainian CEO podcast. And uh, in today's show, we have the third guest from Chicago. His name mm-hmm. is John Sarasani, entrepreneur who grew and sold his insurance company and then started a venture capital firm. And uh, today he will tell us about that. Hello, John, and thank you for coming. I'm happy to be here. And uh, prayers going out to all of the Ukrainians in this time. I, I got to tell you, Bolo, I usually don't do podcasts like this, not newer ones, at least. You know, when I saw that you were in Ukraine, I made me want to do it. So greetings, everybody. Okay, John, thank you for your support and for coming. And uh, to start, can you please tell a bit about yourself? Sure. So I had a an insurance company that I started from my kitchen table. I had worked for a big corporation prior to that and just decided, you know what, I, I could do this better than, than the company I'm working for. And the company I worked at was a billion dollar organization. They were the third biggest in the world at what they did and 30,000 employees and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what though, at the end of the day, the other 29,999 employees aren't really doing anything on these accounts. I'm the one doing it. I, I am the product. It's my human capital and my resources that are being sold. So why don't I stop sitting around waiting to get a 5% or if I'm lucky, a 10% raise from one year to the next and give myself a 2000% raise and work for myself, put myself on the top of the org chart and uh, build equity into my future instead of making somebody else rich. And and that's what my podcast and what my book is all about. It's 2000% raise. I love the path you've taken. You landed the job in the promising industry, got the knowledge, the experience, and then mm-hmm. uh, just uh, use that to start your own venture in the same space. You know the client, what they want, and uh, it's extremely smart. Also, can you just give us like exact steps if you remember you were making to accomplish that transition? How did you determine that was the right time to start your own business? Was it like a client who was ready to pay or maybe you found an investor or a partner offering you a seed funding? What was your exact first steps? Like, did you started LLC, find the partner? What were your steps? No, I didn't have any partners or LLCs or anything like that. I um I started it off myself. Eventually I started the LLC when I started the company. But it, it's very strict in, in America. A lot of companies that are in competitive environments like this will have sales jobs that will have a, a, what's called a non-compete connected to them. Very common in America. So that means that you can't go steal your clients. In other words, if I'm working for somebody else, I can't just like say, hey, come be my client over here now and uh, let's leave these guys that you would get sued. And it's also very unethical. For me, it starts off with an awareness. Okay. And, and really, I tell people this, everybody needs to have this awareness. Once you realize that your job in corporate America is not that important. You're just a piece of a puzzle and you can be replaced. And if you want to hold yourself to a higher standard than that, if you want to actually have control of your destiny, you need to first create this awareness that you're just a piece of a money-making puzzle. They're bribing you by giving you a salary to work there. And if you leave, you're going to be replaced. So once you have that awareness, shift your mindset to thinking about your job in corporate America as paid training. Okay, you know what? You're training me for the company I will be starting in the future and you're gonna pay me for it. Now, here's the thing. You don't know this. You're employing me. You don't know this is paid training for my future, but I know it and that's what it is. And and by the way, when I'm working here, I'll be a good employee. I'll do everything you ask of me and, and you'll be happy with that. But I'm not staying here for 40 years. I'm staying here for a few till I learn everything that I need. Then. I'm going to be an entrepreneur and start my own company. 
Uh, by the way, how were you feeling like when you started a company and someone new comes to you for an internship and uh, did you suspect that uh, everyone, they will work for your company and then start their own? <laughs> that is what I call the corporate conundrum. If you have a person working for you and uh, they have that same desire that you have, you know, you might run into an issue there with them eventually leaving you too. And I got to tell you, that's typically with salespeople. I've been able to bypass that because I never really hired a sales force. What I did was took a more of a um, global marketing F and I worked all the leads and the sales. Now we became a pretty big company, but I developed a niche working with college and university clients in the corporate insurance space. Nobody else was really doing that because of that niche. There was no need for cold calls. Eventually, they started just coming to us from word of mouth. So I got to tell you, Volo, it was a balancing act, man. I always said, okay, let me get outside of this niche. I'm going to hire these salespeople, and I'm going to pay them a 30% or 40% commission on what they bring in. And then I'm going to have to hire these resources around them to make them feel important. All for what? For them to eventually leave me to go start their own company if they're good. And if they're not good, okay, you know what? Forget that. I'm going to focus just on my niche and being the best in that space. And um, that's exactly what I did. I, I would hire support people around me that could assist in that. And usually when people are in the more of the account management types of roles, they're, they're not, um, I shouldn't say they're not motivated by money, but they just might look at themselves a little bit differently. Okay. Because when you're in an account management role, you're really playing a support position and you don't necessarily need or want to be that person to, to run the show. And you don't know if you have the skill set to, because the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is bringing in the business. So if you've been an account manager working for someone else and you're the best account manager that's ever existed, good for you. But if you don't have the ability to bring in the clients, there's no accounts to manage. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. So you basically found uh, Blue Ocean, call it product market fit, where you position yourself you exclusively serving colleges. You had just, as you said, queue of customers. You didn't have to make calls. But can you please go a bit deeper into that topic? Like, how did you pick that niche? Was it like in your previous company, yeah. you saw the opportunity or who told you like you should focus on uh, universities? Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you said that because no one's really asked me that before. You're absolutely right. Okay. First of all, I needed the niche in order to compete against billion dollar organizations that I was going to be going up against. It gave me a competitive edge that kind of even the playing field a little bit. Now, a lot of times some clients would want the big established company that's been around for a hundred years and so be it, you know, that would happen from time to time. But uh, if that wasn't an issue, I would have had every single college of the country as a client and, uh, you know, even have done uh, better off. But what I learned at the company I was working at previously, all right, we worked on these big universities there, the state universities that had 20,000, 30,000, you know, uh, students, 100,000 students and, and a few thousand employees. And, you know, we'd work on those accounts, but other people in the office were not, you know, focusing on just that niche. And they'd be working on manufacturing companies and maybe car dealerships and maybe factories that have 400 employees. Well, why are we working just with colleges that have a few thousand employees if I'm in the same sales meeting as these other guys and they're getting high fives for selling accounts that are, you know, only 400 employees because from we were selling employee benefits for so from an insurance standpoint, that's a good sized account. So I start thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, let me shift downhill. Let me start going after the small colleges, the smaller institutions that are private and not state universities. 
All right. Those guys, they only have a few hundred employees. Gosh, we have a great value proposition that we could bring to them with this higher education focus. Well, my bosses were like, no, you you know what, John, you're so talented. You, you got to keep going after these big ones. And I go, okay, that's fine. But let me put a team together to go after the little ones because they're, they're worth just as much money as these 400 employee factories. You guys don't realize that, right? Bolo. They didn't want to do it. And, you know, when you're a billion organi dollar organization, sometimes you got people just drinking out of fire hoses. You know what I mean? There, there's so many different fire hoses being sprayed and management and upper management doesn't have the time for it. And I'm sitting here looking at this like, well, shit, you're only paying me $140,000 to work here. I brought in close to a million dollars worth of revenue last year. I don't think it was really because I worked here with your name on the business card. I'm pretty much doing everything. And now you're not even listening to my 27-year-old ass because you guys are all in your 50s. You think my idea is stupid? Okay. So from there on out, I kind of just removed myself from the equation and started interviewing with other organizations. You know, where could I get a job? Now, I wasn't telling them about my idea with a smaller college. So I wasn't going that far, but I was sought after. There was, you know, competitors. That, that were more than happy to make me very good job offers with a higher salary guarantee. And I almost took one and I didn't, like we got to the 11th hour and I just decided, you know what, after about five years of working here, I'm going to have the same damn conundrum that I'm having right now at Arthur J. Gallagher, where I work. I'm, I'm going to think I'm underpaid because they're giving me this upfront money. They're saying, okay, we're going to give you this salary guarantee over the next three years. Even though, even though you haven't earned it, we're going to give you this. Okay. Well, over time, they're going to want me to bring in enough revenue to justify that guarantee. All right. But how about years four and five? Five. I'm going to feel like I'm underpaid. I'm going to know that it didn't matter. I just took this bribe of a salary guarantee. That's all I got out of this deal. I'm only 27 years old. I got so, so for the next 30 years after they win, I just won on the first three years of the salary guarantee. Why would I do this? And then that's kind of when the light bulb went off. You know what, man? I got this great idea with small colleges. I don't need anybody. You know, I don't need anybody. So complicated. You, it's going to be so hard to your own insurance company. Where's your office going to be? My kitchen table. So you're going to have clients come to your freaking kitchen table? No, I'll go to their offices. Okay, okay, okay. But uh, what about where are you going to get the capital to hire an account manager or a customer service rep? I'm going to do all that. And as, as soon as I get enough clients, I'm going to pay people from those clients' revenue to do it. Okay, well, then who's going to be an investor? Who's going to raise capital? How are you going to raise capital? Well, I just explained. I don't need capital. <laughs> I'm doing this from my house that I already own. And I'm going to be the person that does everything. Impossible. No one's going to work with you. Who are they going to work with? John Sarasani Insurance? Nah, I'm going to name it Northwest Comprehensive. Well, what the, what the F does that mean? <laughs> exactly. But it sounds like a big company, doesn't it? And then you're going to say, okay, I'm the president of John Sarasani Insurance. No. I'm going to say I'm a uh, consultant that works for John Sarasani Insurance, or I'm a seasoned salesperson that works for John Sarasani Insurance. They don't need to know that I own the company. They don't need to know that I'm a president. And by the time they figure it out, they're going to be so happy with my service that they don't care either. That's exactly how the whole thing unfolded. And by the time I hit year two or year three, just went to the moon as far as revenue is concerned. That's an interesting story. And uh, what I see many entrepreneurs are facing, like when the past similar to yours, yep. then, uh, if they pursue like something that wasn't tested before, like no one did that before, yep. there is a risk that, for example, you created a value proposition, you presented to the audience, to small universities, and uh, yep. the 
think they don't have that need. Maybe big colleges, they really need to work with big insurance company, but smaller, maybe they need just consultants. There were a space for a failure. And I just wanted to ask you, how did you define the, the value propositions for those universities? And also I was listening to one of your episodes and you described mm-hmm. your approach where aim to make a deal. You were calling the representative of college and calling them out to eat and also mm-hmm. you know, yep. like for a free state and they, they were coming <laughs> for a meeting and uh, you yeah. were, what was your process? So the thing for me is I knew that early on I wasn't going to have the credibility with potential clients that my other competitors, especially when you're calling on colleges. They know who all the big players are. They know the names of everybody. I knew that if I just emailed them, or if I just wrote a letter, maybe it was going to be hit or miss. Maybe they'll meet with me. Okay, who knows? All right. I had to follow up was key because I knew once I was able to get face to face with these people and they were actually able to hear me talk and hear me explain you know, what it is we do, they were going to see value in that. Now, a hundred percent of them, maybe not, but I'm going to be much better off if I'm able to get in front of them. Now, some of these people were just simply not in the market, Bolo. They, they didn't care. They, they weren't interested in meeting because they're very happy with what, what their current situation is. But a lot of times in insurance, people just don't change it. You go years, decades without really having a third party review what you're doing because you have such a close relationship with your current provider. You don't mess with it. So I needed to change that and I, I needed to kind of you know, crack that barrier. And I knew it was a numbers game. So the more people I called, the more people as a result would, would agree to meet with me. And the more people that agree to meet with me would eventually become clients. And it started off with those damn phone calls. Now, how do you go from a phone call to getting them to agree to meet with you? It's an art because you don't want to come across as too salesy or aggressive. I would go see a client, say three hours away, and I'd stop it. I'd look on a map and say, okay, there's these colleges are on the way there. And I'd call them. And I'd name drop the college that's already a client that I'm going to see. Hey, I'm going to see XYZ University, you know, coming from Chicago. Hey, you're right on the path here as I'm looking at this map here, Dan. And how about I just stop in and tell you a little bit about ourselves? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Hey, man, you know, I'm going to be there at lunchtime. You do got to eat, right? Well, I'm busy. But you do eat, though, Dan, right? Well, let me buy you lunch. Come on, man. Called you 10 times in the last year. Let's make this the time. All right, fine. I'll meet with you. You know what I mean? So sometimes it could go like that or it might go click, hang up, (laughs) not interested, hang up. And it's those hang ups that you really got to have the tough skin. Now, luckily me calling on universities, there wasn't a lot of rude people or hang ups because after my second or third year of doing this, they realized that I'm out there in this space and these guys all kind of talk to each other. So once they realized I was kind of like a player that's, that's out there, I'm at their conferences and at trade shows, no one was going to be like, rude <laughs> you know what i mean um but they'd politely say no just the same let's say yeah that's great to hear and uh yeah. we lack this in ukraine this like wolf from the wall street approach when you just yeah. reach out to people and uh, try to be uh, valuable for them and try to close them we lack that fortunately in ukraine but okay. i think we have potential and uh, we will learn and one day we will become as good in sales as uh, americans uh, <laughs> Well, you got to be careful because sometimes like if you start reading up on like American sales tactics, you got to be careful. There's a big difference between business to business sales versus business direct to like a customer sales. Okay. It's called B2B or B2C. B2B sales a lot of times needs to be more consultative. You need to like demonstrate a value proposition and really be much more professional. 
Whereas if you're selling like to an individual, like say you're a car dealer is, is, a, is a great example. A car salesman could be pushy. He could try to convince you using these American sales tactics, like make you feel almost like pressured to make the sale. You try to do some of those things in a business to business environment. Don't let the door hit you in the rear end. That's what they'll tell you. And then they'll never talk to you again. And they'll tell all their peers that you're rude. So you got to really find that line. Yeah. Value-based approach is like mostly adopted among the entrepreneurs here in Ukraine. Okay. There are not so many though, awesome. like pushy sales because they just don't know how to be that pushy. And like those who are pushy, they usually like have no deals. So that's why most of the salespersons in Ukraine, they try to give some value. For example, I had a conversation with a lawyer. So he launched like a webinar, then mm. he out to me. We had the call and he like, okay, what problems you have? Uh, Volo, yeah. I was just, okay, I'm curious about what entity should we go for? He was lucky that I had this need. We started a conversation. He gave me a lot of value, like step-by-step -step plan. And then yep. maybe even like I will become his customer, not this month, but maybe even like in half of a year. But he gave me this value. And uh, in the long term, I, I think this strategy is a great one. But Good. back to your journey, I want to talk about merge and acquisition you made. And uh, why did you decide to sell your company, Northwest Comprehensive, to another yeah company why did you decided to do that and uh, the important aspect what were your feelings when you were like recognizing that the next five years you will dedicate to the company and you will work for that company even after acquisition because i am not sure but i guess like for most entrepreneurs when they imagine uh, that their company were sold they are like just celebrating all the time buying new cars and that's it they're free and uh, what was your feelings in that position so the reason i sold it is because I don't know if you guys have private equity in Ukraine. I mean, you do. I don't know how familiar everybody is with it, though. But a private equity firm backed one of my larger competitors. And once a private equity firm gets involved, it's a group of investors behind them. They're able to make substantial moves. And they approached me to buy my company. And what they were trying to do was buy other companies like mine um, of similar size. And then they're going to roll us all together under the umbrella of this existing company that they were backing. It just is what it is kind of a thing. And, and in that process, they need to incense people like me to sell my company to them. Now, I was making a lot of money. Why would I sell this company? It was a cash cow for me. Well, I was able to do, I did it because they were able to offer enough of a, um, a multiple of my profits to, uh, you know, to make it make sense. And, um, and I did that. Now, there was a catch, though, as you mentioned, you had to work there for five years because this is a very relationship type of a business. So they wanted to make sure in that five-year period that they do everything to what we call an institutionalize uh, the business. And another word for institutionalize is irrelevant. <laughs> I'm going to try to do everything I can over the next five years to make John irrelevant <laughs> To these clients and there's different forms that's that's going to take it could be that uh, hey john let uh so-and-so work on this account hey hey john we need you on this this committee in boston and we're taking this you know we need you to manage these people and every 
I might say yes to any of that stuff. It moves me a little bit further and further away from my clients and, and makes me less and less relevant to them. So that's exactly why that was there. And now I knew this was going to happen though. This was nothing shady going on here, but it sucks as a business owner, right? Because you, you want to do everything now. This is the deal though, man. I accepted all this money. We made a deal. I work for them now for five years, which that part sucked. Being an employee again for five years was, uh, that was a little bit more difficult than I had anticipated because you, you get this damn you know, you're used to being a person that could make moves. You're thinking about now all of a sudden you got to adapt to environments that are maybe lesser than yours, maybe a culture that doesn't have the same work ethic of, of what you had at your company and egos get in the way. You know, you come part of this organization and there's only, you know, a couple handfuls of employees I brought over, but they have hundreds. We're working our ass off well past 5 p.m. coming in every day of the week, coming into work early at seven in the morning because we're winners. They're, you know, if they're barely in the office or they're you know, the office is a ghost town at 2 p.m. on a Friday. Forget about it. It's like, these aren't winners. These aren't how people work their ass off. It doesn't make us champions. But over time, how do I sit here telling my employees that I brought over, keep working twice as many hours as everybody? Hey, let's keep it. You know, eventually over time, it just deteriorates. And uh, and you become dead man walking. You're like, gosh, this sucks. I did everything I could to try to change that culture. And it sucks. So it, it is what it is. You know, there's there's certain things I did learn from them that, that were positive, but it's useless information because I don't do the job anymore. So who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? So the summary before making the deal, you should consider, are you ready to dedicate all this time working as employee? Also thinking about like who is buying your company? Does their values match with yours? After you make this exit, you started to work as angel investor. Do you? remember the first deal you make as an investor what was that was it like a startup in insurance or maybe mm. it was a new industry for you can you please tell us about that the first the first one i got involved in is called osdb online sports database made uh very good friends with one of the founders and a guy named ryan rotman in los angeles he's become a very close friend of mine what what intrigued me to this is that one of his business partners and also founders is aaron Rodgers, the the nfl football player now it's interesting i'm in chicago ryan's in la how do we get in touch well all i did was post on linkedin that i'm a venture capitalist now and you got so many people running around in this space trying to be relevant trying to be that connector hey let me introduce you to this person and blah blah, blah. And they, they serve really no purpose other than just trying to be in the conversation and uh that's exactly what happened here <laughs> because I, play, I played football when i was in college and somebody saw that aaron Rodgers has this company and hey let's connect these two people and for those of your fans that don't know um aaron Rodgers is a very is a very famous american football player very famous like he's like david beckham of american football all right i don't even know if ukrainians like david beckham and that's probably a dated uh analogy now anyways but um <laughs> Yeah, man. So uh, that was the first one. We have not had an exit yet. There's still a lot of work to do, but it's exciting. It's very exciting. You know, we got cool people involved. It's a technology company that um, is going to be a database for everything sports related. So if you want to know any salary information, any charity information, any contractual information, anything you want to know, who's your agent, who's their agent, what were their stats and all that crap, it's um, it's all verified right on the site. And they do new content as well, which is a huge distinction as well, the original content. You made the right analogy with David Beckham because honestly, in Ukraine, soccer is much more popular than American football. Oh, yeah. Everyone, oh, yeah. everyone knows the David Beckham. 
And also, I wanted to ask you about your investments. Mm-hmm. I you made the first deal you made. It was like in an area where you are passionate. As I understand, you were passionate about football. That was your first investment you worked in the industry where you know every, everything about that. So I, I didn't go back into an insurance because I already did insurance. You know, this dominated a lot of my life. You know what I mean? So I just decided, you know what? I've given enough of my life to insurance. And and quite frankly, it's not very exciting to talk about. It was quite lucrative for me. It's, you know, going to make sure my grandkids and grandkids' kids maybe don't have to work if they don't want to, but they will want to because we're going to keep working in our family. But it's not very exciting in our conversation. There's nothing exciting talking about the Affordable Care Act and employee benefits and employer-sponsored health plans. Nobody cares. And the people that do care are usually like old with medical conditions. Nobody wants to talk about this shit. So what I decided is I'm going to get into venture capital opportunities that are exciting. And I'll tell you right now, A freaking tech company that concentrates on sports out of Los Angeles with Aaron Rodgers as the founder. That's exciting. That sounds like more my speed. And I'm in a lot of cool shit like that. So I'm in about 30 different deals. Pretty excited about it. I'm in a hotel deal. I have used to vacation at the Newport Beach Marriott when I was a kid. I was asked to be part of the investment group that actually bought the Newport Beach Marriott. And now we reopened it as the Via. I mean, this is some feathers in the cap kind of shit that I'm involved in. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Now you have venture capital. Like you started as an angel investor. Now it's like team of advisors. Uh, yeah, I got an advice. I have an advisory board because people like want to be a part of my deal and just kind of be around me. But, but at the end of the day, it's the term, the best term would be family office. It's it, meaning it's, it's all my money. We're not taking limited partners or investors. It's, it's John Sarasani's money and make, making the deals. And the company is called Glencrest Global. Yeah. So you decided to stop working in insurance. You do what you want, invest in exciting mm-hmm. things. But is this actually a venture capital business issue free? What are your three biggest challenges right now in your current venture? There's a lot of challenges. I mean, the biggest one is you get these founders that are raising money and trying to figure out, especially the first time founders, you got to figure out if you believe them. Sometimes people are running around trying to raise capital for their company. And it's like, do you even have a company? You know, people like lots. <laughs> they're just full of garbage. And then even the ones that do, it's almost like reckless behavior that they think this is going to actually work. What, what is me giving you $150,000 actually going to accomplish? And then sure enough, a few months later, the company folded. And it's like, do you even care? Do you even care that you just lost my money, buddy? You know, the top three things are kind of navigated or kind of all in, wrapped up into one answer. It's navigating the system and finding the right opportunities, trying to determine, okay, when does this company actually going to monetize for me? Usually these venture capital deals don't pay dividends. It's it's typically you're going in there waiting for them to have an exit, waiting for them to sell one day. And it could be years. So trying to figure out, okay, realistically, who's going to buy this company and when will that be? We're looking at a company like OSDB, Amazon, Comcast, Google, Meta, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Are those potential buyers? Well, certainly, because we're going to have so much data. Do we know if they're going to give a shit? We have no idea. <laughs> so, you know, we, we shall see. So th- those are really the 
the hugest challenges. Is it uh, time consuming for you right now to manage all this, like all, all these founders you invested in? How many hours do you spend on like on this venture capital firm? Uh, I probably work about 25 hours a week right now, but that includes doing my podcast, includes kind of social media stuff that I do. I would say on the ventures themselves, really depends, maybe 10 hours a week, maybe less. Now, if an issue comes up, it could be 50 hours a week just on that. And that, that's the bad part when you got to get lawyers involved and people were dishonest or we didn't dot every I and cross every T in the, in the contract. And, you know, we always get into these deals with like, you know, rainbows and unicorns. This is going to be awesome. We're all going to make a bunch of money. And person starts going sideways, decides that they're going to go get a job working for someone because it's not going their way. Hey, buddy, I invested $100,000 in you. What do you, what do you mean you're going to go get a job? What, what about this company we invested in? Well, well, my wife is getting mad at me. I don't want to work anymore. Okay, I got to get a real job and bring home income. Jeez, what the heck is wrong with people? Is this a real conversation? So I do my best to avoid stuff like that, avoid getting involved in, in stuff like that now. But unfortunately, because I was new at this, I am in a few deals like that and it's it sucks. Also, everyone is talking right now that the recession is coming and uh, they tell it become extremely difficult for startups to secure venture capital. Is your firm also investing less during this time period or have you changed your investment approach? Well, what happens is that most of us or just high net worth people in general will have their money working somewhere. Okay. And, you know, maybe... It's in the stock market, maybe it's in bonds or, you know, wherever the hell it is. Usually these brokerage accounts that, that you're doing that through will let you get what's called a line of credit against your uh, portfolio. And the reason that's important is because the line of credit that you're paying out an interest on that portfolio, when it's low, it's like, it's almost like it's free money. So let's just use easy numbers. If I have a million dollars invested here, I'm allowed to take 85% of it as a line of credit. I could keep that million dollars invested, take out 850 grand right here and only pay a one and a half percent interest rate. Okay. But now if I have this million dollars here, that 85% that I could take out. Okay. Now, if it's closer to like eight or 9%, Ooh, that's a lot of pressure paying eight or 9% on that. I don't know if I want to take that out and pay that interest rate. And additionally, what sucks about it is this position where that million dollars is, if the market's down, okay, it ain't a million dollars anymore anyway. You know what I mean? So maybe that more, looks more like 800 grand. Now you can only take 85% of the 800 grand at a higher interest rate. And that is why money dries up. And that's why it's harder for entrepreneurs right now to raise money because it's not available for everything I just said. So you have less deals than, for example, previous year. Exactly. It's not free money anymore. Returning to the initial purpose of this podcast, we want to help Ukrainian entrepreneurs with some yeah. knowledge so that they continue working because, as you may know, because of the war and the recession, like... Many businesses are shutting down. What is very important, the talent is leaving the country. Can you please tell us what was the most challenging moment in your business career, if you remember that, and how have you overcame it? Listen, man, uh, any challenge any American has had, especially ones in the business world, are, are nothing like the challenges that you guys have in Ukraine right now. We watch you guys on the news every day. We're all praying for you guys. Anything that I could tell you, I could tell you about how this guy ripped me off of a quarter million dollars and lied to my freaking face. I could tell you about how I have a team of lawyers suing people right now that I thought were my best friends that gave me some bogus business structure to try to screw me out of money. These challenges that we face in the business world in America are nothing like what you guys have going on in Ukraine right now. 
hey man, we're all the way in the United States. We just watch this. We, we don't really know. Some of us know some Russians. Some of us know some Ukrainians that work here, that, that happen to live in the United States. But a lot of times they're a generation removed themselves. So they're just going by stories that they heard. We, we don't have a true understanding of what's going on there. Other than we want you guys to win. That, that's about all, all, we, all we know. So nothing I, I could tell you guys could really compare to that. I, I hope that you guys, is Ukrainian considered a capitalist society? Russia is communist. Is Ukraine communist? No, no, 100%. Okay. We want to be a part of a European uh, Union. We are capitalist. 100 okay. There are some old people in Ukraine who had this old mindset, but the youth, they are inspired by the US entrepreneurs, European entrepreneurs, by modern influencers so we are all trying to do business right and uh, to make our economy grow good good yeah so thank well, you well, John, for all your words for your support and uh, for words for ukraine and uh, i'll invite you to visit ukraine once uh, we win in this there war you go. The, we, we will make a lunch with our uh, listeners and they will tell you like, how, how they managed to survive using your tips maybe some thank you and if and if company during the war and then <laughs> this is a pretty uh, i think profitable business will be uh, here because the insurance life insurance right now is very important in ukraine and uh, they do this there's a movie with jonah hill it's a true story it's called war dogs w-a-r dogs it'll show you that there's opportunities to become millionaires during wartime it might not apply exactly to Ukraine, but it's a really good movie about how uh, entrepreneurs could kind of manipulate the system sometimes when it comes to the government. Great. John, where can our listeners learn more about you besides this podcast? Uh, I know you have a book, a podcast. Yep. Where can they find you? So 2000% raise 2000, the word percent raise.com. And then also my Instagram and my TikTok is at John Sarasani, J-O-H-N-C-E-R-A-S-A-N-I. I'm extremely active on Instagram. Feel free to DM me. Let me know you heard me on Volo's podcast and I, I'd love to uh, love the message with you. All right, man. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate this. Thank you too. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.